Warning, Home Truths is about real life, and real life can be distressing. Topics covered may include descriptions of domestic violence, sexual abuse, addiction, or mental health issues. Listener discretion is advised. A Podcast One production. I'm Wendy Searle, and this is Home Truths, where I go into the homes of ordinary Australians who have extraordinary stories of resilience and overcoming tragedy. Deceit is a hard thing to overcome in any relationship, but dealing with deceit that could have fatal consequences and somehow finding your way to forgive the other person can be unimaginable. Yet today I am meeting a woman who has compassion for someone who has taken so much from her. You do realise that you've just played Russian roulette and you put two bullets in the chamber and you spun that chamber and you got one hit and one miss. The next thing I heard was the doot, 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 where he'd hung up and I've never heard from him since. Diane was a single mother of three, having left a domestic violence-filled relationship five years prior. She was thinking, after another evening alone, her kids in bed, how much she missed being married. And then the phone rang and set off a chain of events that would change her life. I um, had been at home with my three little ones and I was making dinner and the phone had rung and it was this guy who said that he'd seen me out and about and he'd actually lied because he said he'd seen me at a club and I hadn't been to a club in a long time um, but had asked friends for my number and wanted to get to know me and my reaction was like I don't know who in the world you are Um, right now I'm right in the middle of making dinner for my children and I hung up on him And um, a couple of hours later, he called again. And I thought, this guy's very persistent. What does he want, you know? Um, I didn't know him from a bar of soap. I didn't know who he was. It was a bit odd. I mean, just some random guy ringing you out of nowhere. And so I was more concerned about who was giving out my phone number and um, trying to get that information from him so I could have a word with them about giving random guys my phone number. So he rang back again the next night. And we'd sort of worked out who had given him my number. And I said to him, look, you know, I'm not interested in developing a relationship with anyone or getting to know anyone at this stage. I've got priorities of my children at the moment. And he said, well, look, you know, don't you get lonely? Wouldn't you like a friend to have a chat to from time to time? And I said, fair enough. And he said, well, when's a good time to call? And I said, probably eight o'clock because that's when the kiddies are settled. And um, he said, well, I'll give you a call and we'll see where where we go from there. True to his word, eight o'clock on the dot, the phone rang. So I kind of chuckled to myself because I thought he was probably counting down sitting there because it literally was on the dot. And again, the next night and the next night, and it just became a a habit that at eight o'clock every night he would give me a a call for half an hour. How long did that continue before you uh, met him? Uh, Oh, for quite a while, um, probably about a month. Um, and my curiosity obviously peaked and everything he said sounded like he was the perfect fit for me, like his values, his beliefs, everything just seemed too good to be true. He said to me, let's organise to go out on a date and we'll go to the movies. So I had to organise someone to come and watch my children and organise to go on this dinner date. 
So I was quite curious to see what he looked like and he talked to me about how I like guys to dress and um, I said to him I was into a clean-cut sort of dressed fellow and um, he came to the house and we walked down to the taxi rank and went down to the movies and I cracked up laughing because the first movie he took me to was a Disney movie and I thought this is very, very odd. <laughs> so you're trying to get away from children and he takes exactly. you to a children's movie. <laughs> exactly. And he was wearing very um, trendy clothes, very urban hip-hop, sort of um, something different from what other people wore. I actually cheekily said to him, I thought I told you I like a man in a shirt and a tie. And uh, he ran to the bathroom and when I came back, the shirt that he had on was buttoned right up to his neck like Steve Urkel and it was all tucked into his pants and I thought if this guy's willing to go to this effort to try and impress me I should give him a go and it kind of was humorous and he was extremely good looking very tall very elegant and um, quite appealing to the eyes. Diane was smitten. She saw this man as a protector and a great role model for her kids. Six months later they married and shortly afterwards they fell pregnant. That was really lovely and very exciting. It was his first child and my fourth. So you must have felt that you'd found a prince, that you were stable, he was hopefully a good stepdad and you were having a baby. You must have thought that uh, it was a time of peace for you. It was. Um, I, th- I thought it was a time that was going to, you know, blossom and and um, that we would create our little family and I would get the end result that I wanted and have a partner to plan a life with in the future. But that's not how it turned out. Um It didn't take very long for the marriage to break down. Um, I started noticing inconsistencies with his story and very soon into it realised that the person that he presented before we married and the person I knew post-marriage was quite a different person. Um, So I felt... um, you know, that he had said all the things that I wanted to hear in in that moment. But then it dawned on me that possibly this person has an agenda other than wanting a relationship. So I started to investigate and, and, and question those niggling questions in the back of my head. And before I knew it, I found... Um, identification, photographic identification from um, different names with his photo on it and from different countries. And so I realised then that potentially I could be married to a stranger. Having um, my new husband as a person that um, the children could look up to as a role model was, you know, something I'd really hoped for. But then to realise that uh, this person has lied to you The question then is why and the fear comes in because the first thought you think is, is this person a criminal? What are they running and hiding from? So when did your suspicions begin and how did they begin? I think the very first suspicion was he asked me to marry him and when we were doing the application for that and he was asked for his mother's maiden name, he wasn't sure what his mother's maiden name was and I thought that was very odd. So your marriage certificate would have been based upon um, him providing information. Was that information correct? No, it turns out that the passport that he used was a false passport that he'd purchased um, with a false identity and and, um, one of the things that stuck in my mind was the maiden name that he used for his mother 
And it turned out that that was his real last name because he had to come up with something quickly on the spot. So I wrote that down in a little diary and um, I've now confirmed that that's his real last name. So um, he, I kind of called him out a little bit in a few ways. He was uh, part of a community of um, African migrants in Australia and the behaviour of some of his friends gave you cause to concern. What were they? Um, well, I now, looking back, realise that they were going along with his stories. You know, it was, it was stories where he was born in a different country, that he had a different nationality. Um, there were so many various things now that I look back that, um, you know, it had to be planned amongst a group of people to get their story straight. But there were odd statements that were said at times um, by some of the women, and I think that they were sort of dropping clues without being directly um, making statements. There was one African woman in particular who would thread in and out of Diane's life, making cryptic comments that in hindsight now seem like covert warnings. My husband had told me he was from South Africa and she came up to me one day and said, he doesn't look like a South African man, he's too tall. Don't you think he looks more like a Maasai man? And that's what he is, he is a Maasai man. So she started creating doubt and when I told my husband what she'd said, he became violently angry and started swearing and saying, how dare that woman speak about me and and make you doubt me? He was ready to go over and and confront her. He was so angry. So I think, um, you know, they were told to hush up. And I now look back thinking um, she probably wanted me to know but didn't know how to tell me. Diane's husband became increasingly violent as the marriage continued. When she discovered his link to criminal activity, she had to make a difficult decision for the sake of her children's safety and her own. I had to, you know, leave the relationship. I went and got a domestic violence order and I had my husband removed. I decided it was time to empower myself and be a better role model for my children. And I decided that I'm not really good at relationships. Maybe I need to give them a miss. So I thought now that I had freed myself from this relationship, this was the opportune time to go and get an education. So I went to university and and studied a social science degree and um, wanted to understand people's behaviours. I wanted to understand my behaviours and how I ended up where I was and just get a sense of why people do the things they do and find some kind of work where I'm giving back in community. And so what kind of job did you get after that? Um, I ended up working with homeless women in for Mission Australia. I got a job in, in Potts Point and it was really rewarding. I loved it. And um, a lot of the women there were um, sex workers or women like myself. And I really related a lot to their stories and I actually found them very inspirational women um, who were trying to survive themselves. And did you find love again? I did. (laughs) He came knocking at my door. Um, It was really lovely, actually. And the thing that just shone about this person was I had thought long and hard about why I'd failed my first two marriages. And I decided that the next person I was going to date was going to have an immense love for his mothers and his sisters. And I felt that if he portrayed that, then that would show me that he would 
cherish and respect me as a woman. And that's what I found. And as he glowed about his mother, I glowed towards him. <laughs> it sounds as if life was in its purple patch that you were having, um, you'd worked hard, your children were being raised by a stable, strong, good role model mother. So life was going swimmingly after a lot of battling. But uh, what happened next, Diane? Well, my health started to decline before that, but I hadn't sort of fully come to terms with what was going on. Um, I'm a, a person who has asthma, so chest infections are sort of part of life, bronchial infections. But towards the last year at university, I noticed they were becoming much more frequent um, and hadn't sort of thought much about it. I also had a lot of aching uh, in my bones, um, went to a, a GP and she sort of said, well, that makes a lot of sense because you're taking a lot of fish oil to counteract the chest infections and fish oil is actually a steroid that can cause muscle wasting just like any other steroid if you take too much. So her advice was to cut back on the fish oil. So there was always an answer for what was going on. But the catalyst happened when I had moved on into working in domestic violence a couple of years later. And um, this particular day, I had taken a young lady to a refuge. And, you know, I was really excited about taking her because it had taken a couple of weeks to get that rapport with her and that trust to, you know, that she would be doing the right thing by leaving the situation she was in, the domestic violence. And that particular day, I told my manager where I was going and we went off, the, the young lady and I in the car, we got to the refuge. And of course, refuges are always understaffed, underfunded. And one of the staff members said, look, the other lady's doing an intake, do you mind waiting? Which was probably a life-saving moment for me. In that time that we were waiting, I suddenly became very confused. Um, I realised that I was not sure where I was. I wasn't sure why I was there. And then I realised I didn't even know who I was or what my name was. And I found myself looking down into my hands and I saw some car keys in my hands. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm supposed to be going somewhere, but where am I supposed to be going? And the confusion was so frightening that a tear rolled down my eye. And I looked up at the young lady and before I could speak, I apparently went into a grand mal seizure. And what is that? So it's it's quite a significant um, reaction in the brain and I didn't realise at the time that I had swelling in the brain, encephalitis. And um, there was something happening for me that was life-threatening. And the poor young lady had the insight to pick up my phone and call my workplace. Um, and the reason I know so much about what was happening is my manager relayed to me that it took her some time to get an address to get an ambulance to me. And so apparently I was seizing through that whole time. So that's, you know, a, quite a significant event. I don't remember any of this. I All I remember is waking up in the emergency department. I'd already been changed by the nurses. All I remember is the most gentle voice saying to me, it's okay, you're in a hospital, you're safe, you were brought here by ambulance. Diane was in the emergency ward and in incredible pain with no knowledge of what was wrong with her. It must have been incredibly scary. It was. <clears throat> they um, did a CAT scan to try and ascertain what was going on and found that I had five lesions on my brain. 
Um, so they asked to get my um, then partner, um, or who's still current partner, to come down, and I couldn't even remember his name. But anyway, they managed to go through my phone and track him down and get him down there. And the moment they got him there, the doctor decided to come over and disclose to me what their thoughts were on what was going on. So I just remember, it's so funny when you're in shock how things happen and it felt like all the lights just dimmed in this very busy emergency department. It felt like it was just silent and there was no one else there. All I could see was this man in a white coat coming towards me and he had a clipboard and it was more about the look on his face that told me this man's about to tell me something. And as he walked towards me, he apologised and said, I'm very sorry, we've got your results. Uh, you've got five lesions, on, tumours on the brain is what he said, actually. And he said, uh, it's secondary brain cancer. How old were you, Diane? 42. 42 with four young children at home. I actually responded to it in a very strange way because I had been sick for about eight months and profoundly sick. Um, the sickness I had was a, a constant cough that was 20, relentless for 24 hours, the kind of cough that makes you um, actually vomit, you cough so hard, and it would inhibit me from being able to drive or do anything. I also had these chronic headaches and confusion. It must have been so frustrating that you couldn't get a diagnosis and then the diagnosis was brain cancer. It was, but at the same time, it was almost a relief and I, I sort of welcomed the idea of dying because I was just so tired of being sick. Four days later, Diane had surgery and the doctors removed one of the tumours. I was in recovery in neurology when they came and asked me some questions about some other illnesses and they realised I had oral candida down to the oesophagus. I actually had just gone to the chemist that morning. I'd lost some toenails through fungal infections. Um, I was very skinny, very wasted, and um, I had this sort of funny colour to my skin. So they came to me um, and put all of the other illnesses that I had together and the history that I'd given them of the coughing illness and and, and fevers and things like that. And they suggested that maybe um, oncology was the wrong place for me and that potentially I should be talking to another set of specialists. So I asked them, what, what do you mean by this? And they said, have you heard of a thing called toxoplasmosis? And I said, yes, when I'm pregnant, you know, we talk about eating undercooked meat and handling kitty litter and, and potting mix as, as a risk for baby. Um, I realised it was a parasite and they said, this potentially could be what's in your brain. And I said, well, I don't understand how does that relate to me now? How would that happen? And they said, well, potentially this could happen if your immune system is compromised um, because then your body's not able to fight, whereas a healthy human would be able to fight. So I said, well, what do I need to do? And they said, do a HIV test. And I said, great, let's do that. And what they didn't realise, in that moment, I saw a shimmer of light because I, up until then, was preparing to die. And I suddenly felt like I'd been given a potential life sentence rather than a death sentence with a HIV diagnosis. 
I remember um, two women came into the room and I'm assuming one was a doctor and possibly, you know, a social worker or whatever, um, to give me my diagnosis. And again, it's it's so funny how you read people, but they came in and I thought it was very strange. They started pulling the curtain around and it, again, it was the look on their face and I thought, oops, they're about to tell me something serious here. And they looked at me and because it was a shared room, I guess they wanted to afford me privacy. So they didn't actually say the words HIV. Um, what they said to me was, you know, that test we asked you to take? And I said, yes. They said, we've got the results from that. And I looked at the lady with a stethoscope around her neck and she just nodded her head forward. And as she nodded her head forward, I took that as in I'm HIV positive. And I surprised myself and I definitely surprised them. Um, I took a big breath in, sort of took a minute to absorb what that meant. And then I breathed out what was a sigh of relief because for the last couple of days I'd been hoping that it was HIV. And I said, thank God for that. They kind of looked very bewildered and said, we don't normally get that response. And I said, you don't understand. You've just told me I'm going to live. Your diagnosis was in 2012. What did you uh, do about advising your ex-partner? I actually wasn't in communication with him. He um, was illegally in the country and he had gone to another state to hide. Um, he had got in a relationship with another woman. They had a child. That woman got put in hospital with um, some pretty serious illnesses that were being investigated. He found out, and that very same day that he found out she was in hospital, he bought a ticket back to his home country and fled. So those stories kind of indicate that he was very aware of what was going on and that he was fearful that he had infected another person as well and was about to be called out. I've spoken to his family since and they've confirmed with me that he was positive and knew he was positive when he came to Australia. This was even more shocking to Diane, as early on in the relationship, she had asked him to get a sexual health screening. I was very aware of HIV because I'd lived in the United States and had children in the United States. So HIV testing back in the 90s was quite a normal thing to do when you're pregnant. And I understood, um, you know, that even though you may be in a heterosexual, so-called monogamous relationship, your only status is only known according to your last test. So I used to annually test even though I was married before um, and had a habit of doing that. So before I married my second husband, um, the discussion came up about making sure that before we entered into the marriage, we did sexual health screening and um, trust comes into that. And at that point, I asked him to go off and do his and I went off and did mine. And so it came back for me that um, all was well and I was HIV negative. And I asked my partner at that time and he said he was all clear as well. So we went ahead and got married. Although her ex-husband had shown no signs of illness, when Diane thinks back, she can recall odd interactions she had with his friends and members of his community, which now feel much more significant, especially interactions with the woman who had previously questioned whether or not her husband was really South African. 
he was going to a soccer match and I was bringing the baby. And they have this um, 40-day thing where you don't take a child out for the first 40 days after they're born. And, um, of course, I'm Australian. I do things my way. And I took the baby down and as I went towards the group of women that were sitting on the sidelines, the wives of the men playing their soccer game, they literally got up and ran away. And they said, we don't want to see the baby, we don't want to see the baby. And they said at the time it was due to this 40-day thing that it brings bad luck that they have to come and greet the baby themselves. But they hadn't come. It had been two weeks they hadn't come to see the baby. And I thought there was more to the story. Um, I mean, eventually the women cuddled the baby and and when they saw he looked well, they, they were quite welcoming to the baby. And then after I'd left my husband, and it was about eight, nine years later, I saw one of the same women and she ran away from me again in the street. And um, I ran after her and said, I know you heard me, you know, and made her, forced her to stop. And she asked if I was well and if my son was well. And I could see she was very uncomfortable. And now looking back, I realised that it was only literally weeks before I got sick with AIDS. So she knew the time was coming that if I was going to present unwell, I was going to present unwell then. But the story with that same person, um, some years later after I had been diagnosed, I went to a wedding and um, it was an African woman's wedding and she was at this wedding and she hadn't seen my son for a long time so I brought him over to the table and said, you know, look at how he's grown and she was saying how much he looks like his father and then I thought, this is my moment. I have to let her know that I knew that she knew he had HIV and she didn't tell me and I leant down and I whispered in her ear, you know, you know he had HIV and you know I got AIDS. And she outed me at this wedding and yelled out to the whole table, oh, it's only HIV, you'll be okay, Um, which completely made me want to lose it. I, I was just so furious at her having that attitude and not even taking ownership of the fact that, you know, sorry that we kept it secret or sorry that we didn't let you know or... Sorry for not putting Sorry. your children and your child yeah. at risk, you breastfed. And that's what I said to her. I said, if I had known, I wouldn't have breastfed, you know, like, but we're in a public place at a, at a person's wedding and she's telling everybody I've got HIV and it just wasn't the right thing to do. So um, I was very disappointed. But beyond that, I was angry. And one of, there was some other women there that had HIV as well. We went to the wedding together as a group. And one of the women who's from her country could see there was something wrong. I must have looked very angry because she came over, put her arm around me and said, it's not worth it and walked me away very briskly from the situation. For about 10 years, um, I couldn't bring myself to be around the community. I felt so betrayed and and so hurt. And then I came across a couple of African people and I told them about my HIV. And these were men that um, I knew and they said, you know what, you need to go out there and talk about this and don't worry about harming our community because my concern is that this story would you know, reflect badly on everyone from the African community. And this isn't the reality of most people. It's just a small group of people who, you know, as far as I'm concerned, not morally sound people. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It's all to do with the person's individual morality. Exactly. exactly. And that's why, you know, I, I feel concerned about raising that, that part of the story um, because I don't want it to reflect badly on African people. 
Diane's ex-husband made contact with her years later to ask about their son's health. Somebody told him that I had brain cancer and he reached out. Um, And when he found out I had HIV, his reaction was quite different. Um, So I told him that we would be getting our boy tested and just making sure he's okay. So the purpose of the phone call was to see the results of our our son's um, diagnosis. And um, I told him that I was very grateful to find out that our son was okay and that he didn't have HIV. How old was your son? Eight. And um, the father was like, okay, Um, and he was quite silent on the other end. And my reaction to that was, you do realise that you've just played Russian roulette and you put two bullets in the chamber and you spun that chamber and you got one hit and one miss. And that was the last words he ever heard from me because the next thing I heard was the doot, 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 where he'd hung up. And I've never heard from him since. My partner was very angry and wanted to go and hunt him down and have him put in prison. My take on it was somebody infected him the same way he infected me, whether it was knowingly or unknowingly, we're all in the same boat. Um, It wasn't going to change anything. All I had to focus on was, again, being able to get myself well to be a good mother. And um, I kind of... I'm too soft, I think, but I I kind of realised that this person felt that they needed to come to a country like Australia to access medication to live. And if they hadn't, you know, their their viability of survival um, wasn't very high. So the human side of me says, I kind of understand. And now having lived with it, I understand the fear of disclosure and the fear of people's reactions. And this person... Um, They needed to feel safe and be a citizen of our country, which they didn't get, Um, so they had to lie to do that. So I I have a sense of empathy, if that makes any sense. But the one thing that makes me angry is that he put our child's life at risk. When I found out um, how long I'd had it, he was eight years old and um, we got him tested and he tested negative. Your youngest son had had for a long part of his life a sick mother. That must in some ways be difficult on you, but what's his view? It's had a harmful effect on him because he's watched me be unwell over the years. Every time I get sick, he thinks it's I'm going to die or something tragic is going to happen. And um, he's, he said to me, no, he was glad that I had told him and that he'd rather know than not know. Um, but he had to get his emotions in check because he just is so afraid all the time that I might not be here. In your heart of hearts, in your soul, in your gut, do you harbour any anger towards your ex-husband? I say I don't, but I think, you know, there are moments where I have been angry and, of course, the fallout from late diagnosis is potentially you know, you have other health issues come up. So um, I can power through that, but I look at my children and I just think, you know, how much they've had to step up to help me or to not have a mum that's as present as she could be in, you know, things that mums do, which is helping with homework or taking them to the sporting activities or whatever that may be, whereas they became my carer. 
When you got your diagnosis, you've said that one of the things that you thought about is how can I use this in a positive way? In the depth of a life sentence, why would you be thinking about other people? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think, I think um, you know, I'd had so much happen to me in my life that for me to make sense of something so terrible was to try and turn it into something good. And the only way to turn something good is to share that information. And I felt like I had realised that maybe my purpose in going to university and studying what I had studied was for this moment. It was for this moment to go out there and share and educate people and hopefully make it easier for the next person and hopefully encourage people to come forward and test because if people are frightened, they're not going to test. And if they don't test, they're going to end up in my situation. 21% of people who are HIV positive have gotten through heterosexual sex and a lot of women aren't aware of it until they actually have these other symptoms. That's correct. Um, And it's sad because I know many positive, uh, we refer to ourselves as positive people, um, positive women living with HIV in Australia who have gone to their GP just like myself and actually even directly asked for a HIV test and been told by their GP, oh, you're a woman, it's not going to affect you, don't worry about it. Um, And some of those have persisted and ended up finding out that they are HIV positive. You tell women to take care of their health and what's what's your recommendation to women? Look, I think, you know, we, we go to the dentist, we have an annual checkup, we do a clean. Why don't we have an annual STI sexual health checkup? And um, that includes people in what are supposedly um, long-term relationships. I mean, at the end of the day, we should all be looking after ourselves individually and that's not to say that we don't trust our partners, but that's just to say that I'm giving myself the optimal care for my health. One of the reasons I want to talk to you, Diane, is that the fear that was put into place with the 1990s campaign of um, the Grim Reaper, what is it that keeps people so scared? I think um, there's not enough education out there. I don't think the general population is up to date with the information We've just had the conference that um, the Australian Society of HIV Medicine, ASHAM, have agreed with the science that if you're undetectable, you're untransmittable. There is zero risk to anybody. And this is just so... It's just such a change for us that we are no longer people to be feared and that we can have the same rights to love and be loved and and have sex the same as anybody else and not worry about um, the fear of maybe infecting another person. Diane, what's your prognosis health-wise? Um, it's a day-to-day prognosis. <laughs> I just got through cancer and I'm, like, ready to go out there and and dance and enjoy every minute of life. But I know that potentially that could change at any moment. You know, you're not pining for that designer label, whatever. You're thinking about, you know, time as being precious and time with loved ones and time in nature. And so it's it's really changed my outlook and it's made me appreciate life a whole lot better. Diane says she's too soft, and maybe some would agree. But I think it takes strength to have empathy for someone who took so much from you. 
Diane has turned her negative experience into motivation to make sure that this doesn't happen to other women. And she is now a dedicated advocate for women living with HIV. Home Truths was presented by Wendy Searle and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production and music by Matt Nikolic. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au. Download the Podcast One app or search Home Truths on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to receive a free notification each time I release a new episode, hit subscribe. And if you would like to get in touch and share a story of your own, email me at hello at wendysearle.com. That's wendy, S-E-A-R-L-E dot com. Podcast One. If any of the issues in this episode have affected you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Lifeline provides all Australians experiencing a personal crisis, access to a 24-hour crisis support and suicide prevention services. For a list of more specialised resources, please visit www.puckerup.com forward slash help and that's spelt P-U-K-A-U-P dot com forward slash help.